You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. We all love a personality quiz, right? You get to see yourself through a lens you may have never considered looking through and discover things about yourself you never thought about before. And besides, who doesn't love an excuse to think and talk about themselves for a few minutes? Depending on your stage of life, the circles you travel in, and where you spend your time online, you may or may not have noticed the boom of personality quizzes and typology assessments over the last 10 years, and even more so since the pandemic. It makes sense, in particularly chaotic and challenging times, we tend to look for something, anything, to help us make sense of things, to help us make sense of ourselves and to hopefully assure us that not only are we equipped to survive this chaos, we, each of us individually, are uniquely programmed to thrive beyond it. So, since we're on the subject of identity this season, and since we've already begun digging into the questions of who or what can tell us who we are, and the limitations of any person or tool that attempts to do so, today I'm thinking about typologies, our interest in them, our reliance upon them, and what that means, or what we're making that mean about ourselves and about each other. I have a unique perspective on typologies because I, in fact, created one back in 2016. It was called the Spark Archetypes, and it actually saw a modicum of success with around five or 6,000 people having taken the quiz and downloading the results by the time I closed down the website. The archetypes were a culmination of my life's work, really everything I had studied and learned, created, and implemented in terms of philosophy, education, and spirituality up until that point. And they continued to evolve as I evolved for the couple of years after I initially launched them to the public. The idea behind the archetypes was that they were meant to capture not so much who you are, but who you are together in relationship with others, with all of us. The mission, of course, being, and I'm quoting myself here, to tell us how we influence one another in partnerships and in groups and show us how becoming aware of that influence can fundamentally shift the way we relate to one another so that we can do better and be better together. If you're a frequent or dedicated listener of this podcast, that will probably sound very familiar. Yes, indeed, I've been at this peace, love, and understanding thing for quite a while now. But I started to see problems with the archetypes almost immediately after I released them. Turns out, they're the same problems all typologies suffer. For example, one of the 15 archetypes was called Mother. And despite a very in-depth explanation of what this meant and how to think about it and use it or work with it, I lost count of how many men and childless women who, upon receiving the archetype of mother as their result, 
contacted me to let me know their very strong feelings about how wrong this was. Relatedly, the whole system of the archetypes had a masculine-feminine spectrum built into its foundation, which was only revealed in the report that each person received explaining their archetype and how all the archetypes fit together. Well, people had feelings about that too, let me tell you. I'm not masculine, I'm a woman. The healer type is feminine, but I'm a man. So there was this graspiness that people had. And of course, I'm not saying everyone, but the idea was for this to be accessible to virtually everyone, because like this podcast, my mission was to help all of us understand one another. Sneaky plug. If you love We're All All Right and know someone else who would too, please do share. Anyway, so yes, there was this grasping, a needing for this archetype or this particular typology assessment to get it right, to get them right, for it to tell them who they are, and to do it in a way that's palatable and agreeable to them, of course. And yes, I'm poking fun a bit here, but in truth, as I mentioned earlier, I do get where this neediness comes from. The world can feel overwhelming sometimes, and anything that can reassure us is like a source of water in a vast desert. But if that water turns out to be a mirage, well, anyone would have feelings about that. So that neediness for the assessment to be quote-unquote right or to be the thing That's problem number one. Problem number two is more fundamental, and in my opinion, almost entirely, if not actually entirely, undermines the validity of typology assessments as a whole. And that is the inescapable bias of their creators. I have a few different examples of discovering my own bias in the Spark archetypes, but the one I'll focus on here is the most I'm going to use the word egregious because it's a flaw that's present in the process of creating every typology assessment in existence. And that is that in designing the assessment, the set of questions that participants must answer, the questions must fit results that are already predetermined. As the assessment designer, you must assign value or weight to each answer, corresponding only to a limited number of possibilities that you have determined (laughs) based on, of course, your knowledge, your perspective, your experiences, your preconceptions. That's exactly like designing a science experiment to only get the results you've already decided you're looking for and the data for which you've already done the analysis. It's just not how that's supposed to work, and for good reason. Hi there, friend. Wow, this is some really good stuff, isn't it? As you may know by now, and if you don't know, now you know, (laughs) my other passion and the work I do when I'm not podcasting is coaching. I mentor other coaches, trainers, and consultants to radically up their coaching game and become the conscious leaders they're meant to be, all by learning to leverage the most powerful medicine on the planet, love. Sound intriguing? Like something you might be interested in for yourself? 
awesome. I work with clients privately in a one-on-one setting, in an intimate group program called the Mentors Mastermind, and I have some new courses and masterclasses in the works as we speak. Head on over to phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Work with Phyllis for all the details. Personality and other typology assessments are not new, not by a long shot. Hippocrates, so we're talking around the year 400 BCE, posited that people could be sorted into four psychological types, or temperaments as he called them, sanguine, phlegmatic, choleric, and melancholic. But it really wasn't until the early 20th century that these types of assessments started to be used in any sort of systematic or widespread way. Some scholars will point to the Rorschach test as the first to be used like this as sort of a diagnostic tool for the personality, though its use was still confined to clinical settings as were Carl Jung's Psychological Types, which, like the Rorschach, were published in 1921. But Jung's work came to be the spark that lit the inferno of personality assessments that came soon after. And that inferno included the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, still the most widely used typology assessment worldwide today and the most widely knocked off and used and abused in ways its original creators never intended. Apparently, Briggs, who was the daughter of Myers and the one responsible for its kind of commercialization, failed to properly copyright the assessment, so it became virtually anyone's to copy, change, misinterpret, etc., Anyway, by the mid-1900s, not only did personality and typology assessments see the kind of virality that rivaled what we see online today, but corporate America was gobbling them up, and by the early 50s, about a third of companies nationwide were using them for hiring purposes. Today, that number has jumped to 80% of Fortune 500 companies and 90% of Fortune 100 companies. These are not only the top earning companies, they're also the top employers. We're talking about companies like Walmart and Target, in addition to the top financial and consulting firms. And that means that these assessments are being used for all kinds of positions, from low-skilled hourly wage jobs through C-suite positions. And that is where the problems really start to become, well, problems. First of all, these assessments rely, and they always have, on self-reported data, which has a number of consequences, including... People, on average, are notoriously bad at assessing themselves. We either overestimate or underestimate our capabilities and our patterns of behavior, usually based on what we think the test is looking for, which means whether we guess right or wrong, whatever we report is still inaccurate. It also means that the same assessment, given multiple times, will almost always produce different results. More on that in just a minute. 
But the worst of all problems with the widespread use of typology assessments is that they do not account for cultural, socioeconomic, cognitive, and a whole host of other differences that make up our increasingly diverse society and workforce. Add to that the fact that, as I described earlier, all of these assessments were and are still created by humans who have biases based on our own backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences, and you get a mess, a mess that has profound effects on people's lives and livelihoods, because people are being systematically turned down and passed over for work that they are highly qualified for because they did the best they could on a forced choice personality quiz with questions that made little sense or had little meaning to them. A quiz that they were administered only once when it is well known, yet wholly inconvenient, that people score differently when taking the same test multiple times. And that brings me to what I consider the fundamental flaw of typology assessments, which happens to be their fundamental premise. That is, that they purport to capture aspects of ourselves that we were born with, aspects that indicate who we are and who we will be forever. Proponents of typologies will say that they show us our potential, who we are as our best selves, and point out the right path for getting there. And that going down the quote-unquote wrong path, meaning pursuing experiences that aren't in alignment with our typology, means we won't reach that potential, we'll either never get there, or we'll struggle and suffer through life. But life is all about experiences, including, very much so, in fact, the quote-unquote wrong kind. How are we going to live fully and grow and evolve and transform and transcend if it's only possible for us to grow in one direction toward one predetermined reality? There's no need to strive for anything because our potential has a limit. It also means that we can assume that everyone else is who they are with no real possibility to change. So although they're completely fooling themselves, it kind of makes sense why corporations would use these typologies in the hiring processes. If employees come into these jobs as who they are and who they'll always be, well then they'll never want anything more. They'll perform 10 years from now exactly as they perform today, and they'll like it. (laughs) As I said, they're kidding themselves, but truly, that's the premise, and in some cases, explicit promise, of these assessments. And all of this is why it's baffling to me that typologies have absolutely exploded among personal and spiritual growth communities. It's especially baffling why they're touted and relied upon so heavily by teachers and coaches in those circles. Teachers and coaches whose very work it is to facilitate transformation and transcendence of limitations. 
I'll end this week's five-minute history with my own take on why different typologies become trendy at any given time, and then, like all trends, fade away for a time only to come back again. My sense is that typologies come in trend cycles because people have an innate sense of more. There is more out there to experience. There is more out there to know. There is more out there to be. That's natural human desire. It's always compelling us forward, away from anything that defines us or we've defined ourselves by, until we find something else that fits better, until we're once again compelled toward more. So, time for a thought experiment, yes? Here's what I'm thinking. We can all agree that typology assessments are useful and kind of fun, right? In certain circumstances, of course. And that seems to be the key. They're useful for personal growth and expansion, to illuminate things about ourselves that we aren't normally conscious of so that we can use that new awareness to make different decisions and experience new things which, yes, means that we take these kinds of assessments while ignoring any premise that states or implies that the result is the alpha-omega of who you are, where they're clearly not useful and in fact can cause real harm is when they're used to diagnose others, to assess their fit or fitness for a particular experience or relationship. Which brings me to my question. Is it possible to create a typology profiler that not only eliminates inherent bias of the creator, but also accounts for and even optimizes assessment takers' biases in self-reporting, and therefore might actually serve the purpose of assisting people in living more fulfilling lives? My answer is, I think so. As to the first part, how to eliminate the inherent bias of the assessment's creator, well, the more I think about it, the less possible I think that is. This has actually been tried to unfortunately less than stellar results. In fact, many companies that now administer typology assessments to potential job candidates use technology, essentially artificial intelligence, in place of a human administrator and have adapted questions to be more suitable to a human-to-computer interaction. (laughs) The problems with that are many, including that technology is notoriously terrible at reading and interpreting voice and facial expressions, especially cross-culturally, and that computers and algorithms and AI are programmed somewhere down the line by humans. So my proposed solution to that is this. What if employers or anyone doing the assessing for whatever reason are fully transparent about what they're actually looking for and why? Let's use Myers-Briggs as an example. Here are the 16 types. We are looking for someone who aligns with this type, this type, or that type for this position because we feel that the job requirements and the culture would really suit someone who has these particular qualities. And see, that actually necessitates the second part. 
accounting for, and even optimizing the assessment taker's biases in self-reporting. And that means allowing for nuance and gray areas, you know, like the way humans are naturally. (laughs) If people are given the opportunity to say, I like to connect with people in this way, and I like to contribute in that way, and I'm really excellent at this while I'm not very good at that, but I'm working on it. An assessment like that might actually do some good. Now, you might be thinking, wouldn't people just lie to get the job? And honestly, I don't think that they would, not on the whole. If given the opportunity in the right circumstances, where the person on the other side, the prospective employer, admissions officer, or love interest, if those people and the organizations or cultures that they represented were honest about what they were looking for, there's little reason for another person to lie because they would be looking for the best fit for themselves too. And that's how assessments like these become empowering. For my invitation this week, I thought I'd share with you how I see typology assessments and see if that might be a perspective you resonate with. Perhaps it may even inspire you to take or retake some typologies with fresh eyes, so to speak, and see what results you get if they're different than results you've seen before, and whether you might use them differently in your life now. So, I see typology assessments as great tools for pointing out ways of being and doing that have become routine or my default. In other words, I see them as bringing the unconscious conscious. After all, the first step in any growth process is awareness, and I'm always interested in growth and transformation. What's so much more interesting to me in these assessments is not so much my results, but the other possible results. I see the other possible results, whether they're archetypes, types, temperaments, what have you, as gateways to new paths, new experiences, new ways of being and doing. And by comparing my results to the possibilities, I can see even more clearly how I have been functioning, what I've believed life or my life really is, and then it becomes a matter of asking, is there something different I would like to be experiencing? Is there something I might like to change? Then choosing from all these other potentialities what else I might experience, what that might look like, and how I might start to move toward it. In other words, I get to see, again, from a new perspective, the breadth and depth of what life really has to offer, and all the opportunities to live it. By the way, if I bring the spark archetypes back, which is something I have been thinking about recently, they'll be transformed into exactly this. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.pw. And hey, I've got something new for you. 
to get each episode in your inbox weekly, plus additional commentary and resources from me, head on over to my website, phyllis.wilson.pw, and enter your email address to subscribe to my brand new newsletter. If you're on Instagram, you can find me at All Right Podcast. That's a great place to share your thoughts and questions about each episode. And finally, if you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit follow in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode of We're All All Right. <laughs>